welcome to the 96th episode of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with today's guests who share a mother-daughter perspective on a T1D diagnosis, Janet Hatch and Zandra Sons. If you're new to the show, welcome and thanks for stopping by. My name is Amber Kluwer and I'm the co-founder of Diabetes Daily Grind and host of this, the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. I enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living their best life with this disease. When Janet's media kit fell on my desk, I knew I wanted to connect. I thought it would be nice to hear from both sides of people affected by a diabetes diagnosis. I totally dig their energy and willingness to share their story. But before we get started, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, this episode was brought to you by Outer Isle Gourmet Foods a delicious low-carb grain and gluten-free bread that's made with simple ingredients like cauliflower, eggs, and Parmesan. Their sandwich thins and pizza crust are low glycemic and can be used for your favorite foods like tacos, turkey burgers, quesadillas, and breakfast burritos. (laughs) The culinary creations are endless and they hooked us up with a deal, so be sure to visit the show notes for more details. Number two, we are weeks away from the epic 100th unicorn episode, and there is still plenty of time to get involved. As a serial entrepreneur, I created a campaign to highlight my fellow creative diapeeps. If that's you, shoot us an email to Penelope at diabetesdailygrind.com to learn more. Number three, the affiliates and resources page is now live at diabetesdailygrind.com and the Just the Facts Please podcast series will soon launch. Hit us up if you would like to join the list of people making a difference in the diabetes community. Number four, (laughs) the real life diabetes virtual happy hour takes place every Thursday and is a ton of fun. The gathering has nothing to do with alcohol, but is for adults. I hope you'll join me for entertaining pub talk, live music, random themes, and trivia sessions with other people who get it from around the world. Please note, you do have to register, so check out the Real Life Diabetes private Facebook group or by clicking on the Happy Hour logo in the show notes. And finally, stay engaged, love, like, share, and comment on all things social media. Sign up for the e-newsletter, where you'll hear things first, leave an iTunes review, subscribe to the DDG YouTube channel, and click on the Amazon banner on the website before ordering. It doesn't cost you a thing and throws a little change my way. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast, ladies. And I have to say to the audience, this is a very impromptu situation. I had the pleasure of speaking with Janet. Gosh, was that last week? Yeah. (laughs) After the media kit fell on my desk and um, I was thrilled with her story. And so we chatted and Xander just happened to be coming home for fall break, right? Yeah, reading break. (laughs) Which is crazy because it's snowing there. That's not fall, really. Where are you ladies calling in from? We're calling from Camrose, Alberta, in Canada. Nice. Yeah, and she lives on Vancouver Island in a, in a place called Victoria. So mm-hmm. it's kind of more fall-like actually where she is. <laughs> she just came home to winter wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I hope you have plenty of gear. When I moved to San Antonio, I only took summer clothes because I didn't think it would be cold. And we had a cold front like last month, and I was... It was kind of ridiculous what I what all I uh, had wrapped around me and leg warmers and just crazy stuff. So anyhow, <laughs> that's too much information. Okay, so I usually start each episode with a diagnosis story, and this is the first time that I've done a parent T1D kiddo combination. So 
Janet, because I know your story, I'm going to hold off on you. Let's talk about what you remember from being diagnosed. Well, it was a lot for any 11-year-old to take in, and it wasn't kind of a diagnosis in me seeing my future as a future diabetic with needles and everything that goes along with that. It was kind of just like thinking about it as, as a flu in a sense or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to go away. Like, okay, I have to do this right now. Nurses learning all this stuff. Like, okay. Okay. But it didn't really register that it was forever. Right. Um, <laughs> so that, that came a little later, maybe, maybe even not, not now, but yeah, it, it was hard to wrap my head around at first that it, it, that it was a forever thing. And I think the hardest thing at first is just wanting to be normal, especially right at that age, like 11-year-old girl moving through junior high and high school and things like that. Right. It was really difficult to, you know, be the one who had to have a juice box and had to right. test. So I kept it really confidential, actually, and, you know, did shots in the bathroom and and didn't test as often as I needed to just because if I wasn't in a situation that allowed that, then I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, sometimes wouldn't do shots before lunch because if, you know, I didn't have a chance to run to the washroom discreetly, then, yeah. then I didn't want to look weird and I didn't want anybody to know. So, well, when you were diagnosed, like, okay, so I remember my, cause I was, it was seven, I don't know, 21 days after my eighth birthday. So I was y- younger, but not until I was an adult did I really start remembering what those two weeks in children's hospital were like. Do you recall? I mean, I remember being terrified. I mean, and that was, granted, I'm a lot older than you are, so things have advanced, but, you know, the needles and the um, just having somebody come in all the time, it was scary looking back. So do you remember any of the being yeah, yeah. So I was diagnosed here in the Camrose Hospital, and I remember staying a night. And it, it wasn't bad. It was very like in my hometown. Everything was pretty normal. I had been in that hospital before uh, for X-rays and just little things like that. So it wasn't that out of the ordinary. And mom was like pretty strong and and positive. I know you, you had to be, and there was definitely your negative moments. But I didn't get any like sadness from anybody. It was kind of like, oh, you know, let's watch this YouTube video of this type one diabetic. Oh, cool. And like things like that. And oh, look at this, like T1 team that does runs all over the world. Like, oh, neat. Like we can do this. And so it kind of just felt like being part of a club. So it definitely wasn't fearful in that first night. And then we went up just in the day to the Stollery Hospital in Edmonton, which I was also fairly familiar with, (laughs) so it didn't seem like anything out of the ordinary necessarily. And yeah, so familiar place and and with the nurses and stuff like that, like they were all pretty good about it. And I I don't even remember being scared of the needles that much, actually. And, And there was a home care nurse who I had known previously before, so... That was four H. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she didn't stay in the hospital. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't a stay from that first night. There was a stay, but they were really full and said, and she was still in that honeymoon phase. So mm-hmm. it, she was an outpatient. Yeah. Did classes in the day to learn and adjust her and then sent us home at night. That was a bit shaky for mom, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. The kids today that are diagnosed, and I talk to parents often, they are sent home, they're like, okay, you've got type 1 diabetes, no offense to anybody, but here's a backpack with all the stuff you're going to yeah, that's how it was. Yeah. That's kind of how it was, yeah. Yeah, I learned how to give shots on an orange. I I mean, there was, some, yeah, uh, it's a long time ago. 
they that's, when they, that's when they used to keep you had to have a baby too and show you what to do now is just see ya. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear your perspective as a parent. I mean, I'm sure you were terrified and, um, you know, I can only recall my mom's face when the doctor, the nurse came in and was crying and saying, you know, she's has type one, you need to go to children's hospital immediately. And, um, I think my comment to her was, you know, no more stickers. What, what does this mean? Because they were trying to tell me what diabetes was and I, all I could think of was sugar, which whatever. So yeah, Janet, how was, uh, let's well, hear your perspective. Well, um, there was some signs, I guess, you know how you just, there's some little signs that, uh, that there's something not quite right. Um, that were missed as, you know, you can't explain those little things like blurry vision, stomach ache, um, infection. I think she had a bladder infection, like just those little things that, you know, they don't add up to diabetes until they right. really start. So she'd gone for a sleepover at a friend's and her dad and I are divorced. So we were kind of headed right after the pickup from the sleepover. I was taking her to go and spend a week. It was summertime with her dad. Mm-hmm. And when I picked her up, she said, Oh mom, I'm just so, I'm so hungry and thirsty. And I thought, I know where you stayed and surely they fed you. <laughs> you must. She said, Oh, can we, can we go and, and just stop on the way, which was really un- unordinary for her. So, so we stopped at a gas station. She got a, what is it? A seven up. <laughs> not probably the right thing to do guzzled it and can we stop and get another one can we stop and it's only an hour drive and so I was kind of you know suspicious going like something was forming there and when we got to where we're going she filled up her can over and the empty can with water over and over again and I thought so something isn't quite right so um that was kind of how it first started and then when when we did get to that point within within that week of this hasn't stopped. So I had found out like, okay, even though she wasn't with me, this thirst, this hadn't ended. I took her from where she was with her dad to the local hospital. And I remember saying to the nurse, like she's here because I I think she has type one diabetes. And yeah, the nurse was not thrilled with me at that moment for being a Google (laughs) doctor. And I, growing up, I had a dog um, who was diabetic. (laughs) She was a a little terrier named Taffy. So I grew up uh, for several years giving injections on a dog for diabetes. And my high school boyfriend was a type one. So I had these experiences with, with diabetes, but nothing prepares you really for having a child with diabetes. Because what I remember from the dog is you just give your shot, give you your food, away you go. Yeah. And, and having a boyfriend who really had well-managed diabetes and not seeing the background really of that. Yeah. I just thought, oh, you just take a shot. You're good. (laughs) I had no real concept of just how diabetes is a moving target 24 seven. I I didn't expect that. So when, when she was diagnosed, I thought, oh, I've, I've grown up around diabetes. You've got this. And I really was that sort of kind of blinded as well and then when um, she was in kind of that honeymoon phase it was oh you just need one unit of insulin for this oh that's that's okay and then when things started the ground kind of moved out from under us and things really got difficult in that first night too and testing and and what's going on like I felt very much like I had a newborn that I knew nothing about and and was terrified so so the first little bit we were both in, I'd say, some denial. 
but <laughs> and then and then as things really get real and you see numbers that were worse than what diagnosis was and right. you know we are this is not controlled this isn't what I thought it was gonna be well and how long because I was I was not in DKA when I was diagnosed but I don't know that they even knew what a honeymoon phase was at that point. So how long did it take for, I would say, type 1 to really settle into where everybody knew that there was no longer a functioning pancreas? Oh, it was within the first four, six months for sure. Yeah. And it's hard to know. It's just you're steadily increasing your insulin. Yeah. And she was also underweight. You know, there's another thing we were missing. I thought it was, oh, it was the end of soccer season and she was a really good sport and ran and ran and so she was underweight. So also as weight increases, you don't know if that's just a need for more insulin. Yeah. So by six months, it was pretty clear that, that there was the, the, the spikes of the blood sugar were, were really apparent, which is sort of kind of coincides with there isn't any functioning of her, of her pancreas. Okay. So Xander, I mean, and again, I'm dating myself, but I don't, I think I tested my blood sugar maybe once a day, twice a day. The machine was the size of a small computer. The amount of blood that you had to put in it, it was like a freaking nightmare and terrifying. Right. I mean, so, and I lied. I mean, I had a journal with, it was all about blood sugars, but I lied. I was like, I'm not pricking my finger. I'm just going to, I gave my insulin every day as I was asked to. I did it before breakfast and before dinner. And like you, I didn't know that I was hiding it from anybody. But now that I'm older and I'm talking to friends that I grew up with, just in the past couple of years, I said, do you? do you remember we having diabetes? And, you know, they would say, no, because you would always go in the bathroom. We never got, we never saw you give a shot. Um, you know, that was through Girl Scout troop. I mean, through um, being a palm. And I had a guy friend tell me um, at a fundraiser, he was like, what are you doing these days? And I'm like, oh, I'm a writer on a podcast host about life with diabetes. And he was like, oh yeah, you hit it really well. And I was like, what? I didn't, I mean, it was not a conscious thing for me. So when you were saying in um, your earlier years that you hit it, were you doing that intentionally or? I, I think so. I think I was doing it intentionally and I never wanted to be the one to stand out. Like even if I was dropped off at school after a dentist appointment, it was my worst fear to walk into a classroom mid session and <laughs> be, be the, the spotlight. So, you know, <laughs> you know, testing my finger or like yeah. doing a needle in grade seven, that would draw a huge spotlight. So I definitely made sure to, to keep that. I actually did a pump trial. Um, so it was just an insulin pump with saline mm-hmm. just to get used to the pump site and the insulin pump. And I was in a volleyball match and you had tight jerseys. Yeah. And I took off the pump because I was like, no way am I having this. But even the like little pump infusion site was barely visible through my jersey and I was getting a bunch of questions about it. Mm-hmm. That? And I was like, there, I, I'm not doing a pump like nope this yeah. is like, too many questions and so yeah I, I I did consciously make an effort to hide it that's for sure and did your friends ever I mean like your close friends when you went to stay the night Janet you probably I mean you told the parents she has type 1 diabetes here's some things to consider but mm-hmm. did your friends I mean did they even did they ask any questions or I did have some close friends who were aware and they were really good with it but I always knew that they had the talk from their mom Probably like, you know, she has this, <laughs> ask about it. And she doesn't want anybody to know about it and don't draw any attention. Just like be supportive. And, and they really, they took that role. So it was really easy, especially with my two close friends to go for sleepovers and yeah. things discreetly. Cause I knew they wouldn't ask about it. And I knew 
their parent was on it. Like, okay, you guys are going to jump on the trampoline. Here's a 15 carb like serving <laughs> of crackers kind of thing. And it was just like both, both us girls had crackers and jumped on the trampoline. So it was normal. Right. And exactly how I wanted it. <laughs> but at the same time, so one of her close friends, uh, Maya, came to one of the days at the, at the, the children's hospital mm-hmm. and was sort of just to be there and learn and be a support. Um, I, I don't know. I'd have to ask Maya now if that was overwhelming for her or not to see all of this, but she handled it amazingly well as an 11 year old girl trying to support her friend. And yeah, the moms were on it and her other really good friend, ended up kind of being a manager of, of hockey and she's a nurse and grew up with her dad as a type one. Mm. And so she was very, so if I was, you want to go sleep over? Great. You're going to Chelsea's house. Because <laughs> I knew that she was on it. She could have conversations um, and know like, and she would check yeah. in on her. So I was so lucky to have that safety, mm. but she was diagnosed within weeks of the beginning of starting grade seven, which is a new school, a bigger school and trying to kind of hide. And, and she felt like there was that she wasn't, I mean, that whole um, example of jumping on the trampoline. I remember you were upset because your friends were being very careful and said, okay, you've done enough jumping. We don't don't want you to pass out. So they jumped and she sat and that really, Mm. That, that day was very big for her because she and upsetting not because her friends they out of love they were trying to be caring for her but she realized that she was a bit different in that moment and she came home and her friends were hockey players and she said sign me up yeah <laughs> I said, what you know you never wanted to play hockey she said I'm playing hockey and I want to show them, and her words were, I'm not a China doll. I'm going to play hockey and take the hits and do it all. So and she not only signed up for hockey and never had, she couldn't even really skate. She joined Hockey Academy at school. Oh, <laughs> so she it just, she did, yeah, she did it to prove a point to herself and her friends and everyone else. So Okay, but let me say in that, because I, I, I can look back in times, decades of my life where I did similar things. I didn't know really, honestly, at that moment that I was doing it because I was pissed about the diabetes situation that I was not going to be different. In that moment when you decided to play hockey, were you consciously thinking, I'm doing this to screw you diabetes? Or was it, yeah, you know? Not necessarily to, to screw you diabetes, just because that denial was still there, but more so to fit into that normal like it there's this overarching theme of fitting into the normal and people that they started to see me as you know not capable and having to be extra careful I'm I wanted to do something to mitigate not being normal and so okay joining hockey is pretty normal for this this uh, rural town and so I'm gonna do that and and yeah it wasn't I don't think I ever had any moments of like screw you diabetes kind of thing it was more so always just trying to optically look normal to people. Oh yeah. I don't even think you thought screw you diabetes because you, that was a, the D word was a pretty bad word. (laughs) You would have said it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would hate even people like saying diabetes or diabetes or anything. Oh, diabetes. (laughs) It upsets me. I'm like, it is not diabetes. Diabetes. (laughs) Yes. And tr- well, try living well in the South, it gets even worse. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I need to, yeah, whatever. Um, okay, so Janet, cover your ears on this one. Okay, so I would go and spend the night with my friends, and one family in particular, they're awesome. And there was three kids, they had all the cer- cereal. We didn't have sugary cereal in my house. So it was like, 
crack. I mean, I was, I loved them and I was over there a lot and I was eating a lot of cereal. Now that I'm older and realize there were, you know, 2000 grams of carbs in that bowl that I ate that day. And I was giving the same amount of insulin every time. Did you ever do anything when you were outside of the household that you probably wouldn't have done in your own one? Not necessarily. I didn't find any like defiance moves different from outside versus inside. Like if there was Christmas cookies pre-baked and in the freezer, I would do that same defiance move here as I would at a friend's house. The the difference I found for me with being out at a hockey tournament, at a friend's Mm -hmm. house, at school, um, and where the high blood sugar spikes came in weren't as much like you know, finding a novelty food and kind of sneaking it, but more so just not doing insulin, not checking Mm -hmm. just because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. And in Mm -hmm. that, you know, not doing your shot and then having lunch, of course, that's going to cause a spike or maybe not testing a couple hours after meal um, when I should have. And and then it was a high reading at supper. So I found that, yeah, at friend's house and just being out was more so like neglect of doing shots and testing and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody did, you know, I don't like the word defiance cause that's not the word, but um, we all have moments like that or have had moments like that. And uh, looking back on that, and I don't know if you can say the same, but I didn't feel good. That didn't make sense. Why wasn't I not putting those two together that I felt like crap if I ate that bowl of cereal. And I remember before cheerleading practice, I didn't want to go low. I didn't want to look crazy. And so I would eat chocolate donuts or something, you know, that I could get from the vending machine just so that, so I'm sure my blood sugars were off the charts. Um, But uh, performance, obviously you're not at your best whenever your blood sugar is really high or really low. So lessons learned the hard way there for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a big trend in in diabetics, the fear of going low, whether that's, you know, you're, you're going out somewhere and, and you're like, okay, I'll just have a couple extra grams of sugar or whether that's, you know, going into a like sporting event or doing anything and overdoing it or, or even if that's um, waking up, testing low at night and having way too much and then waking up high. It's just that fear of going low that really gets a lot of diabetics. One of the problems that we faced fairly early on was, and I, and I think it can be drawn to a severe low that she experienced probably about a year out from diagnosis, but whatever it was, she really lost that ability to sense her lows. So she became very, for, and, and according to the clinic, um, that's not ordinary for her age. So, so when, when Zandra would go low, she would just pretty much drop. She didn't sense that she lost that ability. And I remember her, her endocrinologist calling me one day um, and saying, you shouldn't have, she's, you know, she was what, 12, 13. You shouldn't have an A1C of four. (laughs) And she said, it's a matter of when she has, um, you know, a problem or drops, not if. So she's like, something has to change. But what we were finding was she was just, she was not wanting to do her shots that was a real problem or not and and she was just going low a lot and that coincided with not eating lunches often she didn't want to you know get that junior high and you know just pull out the big brown bag and eat a sandwich in front of your friends so she was skipping and going low at certain times and and as well she was just not sensing her lows just spending a lot of time we we measure it differently here in Canada it's between a number of four and eight feeling great kind of thing what they say and she was at two a lot of the time or two. yeah three 
So, so she was really at risk and I found that to be kind of the hard part for her. Did you have any embarrassing moments in your, um, like when you were away from your parents to where you're, you were too low? Not necessarily. No, not, not that I can remember. I remember actually most of my lows I found were at home because that's when I would actually do my shots. So that, and then not checking, but I remember, um, it was a summer day and, and testing and I tested 0.8, which is the one I've, I've ever been. So I wonder what that translate. Do we, we should look that up and see what that works out too. But I, 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 yeah, let me know. Cause I have no idea the conversion there. Yeah. Um, yeah. The lowest I think I've ever been and were able to record it. I mean, like it, would, it was 28, which oh, is okay. really low. low from what I, from even what I know. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was conscious. I mean, it was not like I didn't feel it. And so my, I, I still feel my lows a little bit. Do you feel them now or is, or is it still? Not, not necessarily. Sometimes I'll feel it like if I've been spending time really high and then I'll be at that four range. But I find if it drops below four or below like the bottom normal, um, then I won't feel it, which is where cinnamon comes in. Cinnamon! Um, yeah. So <laughs> you can see her. There's the background. Cinnamon. The- sleep on the job yeah and and she she, yeah she does and and that's part of her thing her like main working time is at night though Um, Um, just because of those night lows and stuff so we've had a couple times where where she'll wake me up if I'm low or that kind of thing and and yeah a lot of the time like she'll be I'll see that she's gonna alert me because she'll just paw me when she smells me going low and I won't feel low at all. Like the other night I had just eaten supper like 15 minutes ago and I'm like, there's no way that I'm going low right now. Like my insulin hasn't even had time to really kick in yet. Right. And she like started alerting and I was 3.5. So just below that, that low yeah. range. So she really has her place and it gives a lot of peace of mind to me just cause I've been moved out since 17 and, yeah. and also to my parents mm-hmm. with, you know, having that second mom almost around. Yeah. Are you on an insulin pump or CGM now? Um, insulin pump and the Freestyle Libra. Okay. So, and with, I mean, I've worn the Libre and the Dexcom and Dexcom, I currently prefer just because of the alarms and it's definitely made a difference in my nighttime sleep or lack thereof when it needed to, you know? So um, yeah, I was just curious. And so Cinnamon's a backup plan essentially to make sure that if your devices are not working, she's got you covered. Yeah, so the, the insulin pump doesn't have an alert for blood sugars just because I don't use the connecting CGM. And then the Libre also doesn't give alerts. So she's she's my alerting device. <laughs> so, And does she also alert you if it goes high? Um, she does, but they try and get them to just alert to the lows just because the highs are really easy. Like they're almost detectable to human scent. So if they start doing the highs, then they'll start getting lazy and stop doing the lows, which are a lot harder to sniff out for. So mm-hmm. yeah, she's primarily low. low and low is the concern for, uh, for Zandra too. So yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've been out on your own since you're 17. How was that transition? It started kind of what I brought up earlier in this podcast. Um, the, fear of going low and overeating with lows. That was a really big one. Like if I tested low, I would just pile in everything that I could, granola bars, a couple juice boxes. And yeah. (laughs) So so I like just out of fear of going low and then I'd wake up like five times above the normal that I should be. And 
and it was just a constant cycle. And then I would do a big correction dose and then walk myself to school, university, and go low. And then just, it was a whole roller coaster. You've probably heard that term yeah. before. She knows. <laughs> she loves it. Yeah. It's debilitating when you have that type of, I mean, it's been my experience and everyone's different. A, a spike like that high really quick after a low, that'll give me a migraine. I mean, I will be out for the day. It's a hangover. And I don't want that type of hangover ever, you know, to keep right. it fine, but no. Yeah, it, it, was pretty, it was pretty debilitating, debilitating. So just, you know, after experiencing that at least five days a week, every week, and then trying to focus on my like five university science courses all at once. Yeah. It was, it was a lot. And, and first year being moved out. So yeah. yeah, that's, that's a situation where diabetes really did limit kind of the normal experience I guess and really did hold me back I think from as well as I could have done and and in that time too within in that first year she um so we live in a in a community cameras is about 20,000 people and so depending on the size of community that somebody lives you know they may may or may not really know anybody else with diabetes and so for her I mean I think there was probably a lot of closet time diabetics out there as well but there wasn't anybody that we knew of other than one boy whose name was Ty and when Alexandra was in the first year of university and he was 19 he passed away from diabetes so her one friend that she knew died in a low at night so from my perspective that was the catalyst for for some really turbulent times because It got really real when, you know, when you've attended a funeral or, you know, somebody lost somebody to, to diabetes. And so, you know, it was all that message of the doctor telling me it's a matter of when, not if. And and so it, it, it got worse for her. We called it her Netflix and eating because she comforted herself with some Netflix and before bed shoved food down so that she would wake up. Yeah. And, um, and then for me too, uh, I just felt like every time I would wake up in the night, I would wonder, you know, is she still alive? And it was, it was at the point where I just, I really relied on cinnamon so much, just yeah. knowing that, you know, please cinnamon, wake up if she needs something or, or just comfort her. So she was a really big um, gift in that time of when she was trying to kind of recover from and just grieve a, a loss of a friend. Yeah. And I think it, it was in that process that a lot of the grieving for her own chronic illness came into play when it really hit home. So, yeah, I can, I mean, I can't imagine losing a T. I didn't have any friends, T1D friends at all, you know, at all. Um, so I, I can't imagine losing someone that is, can relate to what I'm going through. I mean, so that's, it sucks. And I'm sorry he lost his life. Yeah, I never want to hear those stories. Um, oh, no, yeah, th- those aren't the good ones, that's for sure. But it, it did, like you said, it, it helped me come to grips of, you know, finally, like, five, six years later after diagnosis, like, oh, I actually, I actually have this, and this is yeah. life, and this has, you know, these, like, possible effects, and it was kind of a pull-up-my-socks moment a little yeah. bit. Well, okay, and, uh, okay, both perspectives, I want to start with Sandra, so... I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I, I chose to be, to cut out beef and pork. I had a specialized diet because I chose it. It wasn't because of diabetes. And my parents accommodated that, thankfully. Um, and I can't say that it was terribly healthy, but 
my parents took care of the food. So when I was out on my own and having to do my own grocery shopping and be completely responsible, um, I would like to believe that I kept to that and, you know, ate pretty healthy, but okay. So the reason I bring that up is having mom take care of everything and dad, now you're on your own. Do you feel like your transition to university, you kept up with that? With eating, that's really, yeah, interesting that you mentioned that because I think it was around, yeah, 16, so a year before I moved out, I was doing like a, a little bit of looking into and experimenting with diets and stuff like that. And not like no negative light, I guess, but I found that a lot of like animal products, like high fat things like cheese and, yeah. and bacon <laughs> and all that kind of stuff really like set me up for highs later so I actually cut out all animal products in my diet at like 15 or 16 mm-hmm. or something like that completely like my own choice kind of diabetes related and I had a like huge positive effect on my blood sugars I remember like for three months just really great numbers a lot of those prolonged highs like um, three to four hours after meals like stopped yeah. everything seemed great so that was kind of the catalyst for for how I decided to eat and, and that trend kept up through university and and up till now so it yeah it was I think my eating stayed pretty constant and that the change was like on my own accord and so that kept up without but on the flip side so here's the tell-all mom side <laughs> I, I mean I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, she took this up on her own I was super proud it was an, a step towards that acknowledgement you know like taking control of something but here she is I think what did you say Capricorn, <laughs> yeah, <I'm a> Capricorn. <laughs> and take full control to almost the excess yeah. So it, it seemed as, as great as it was, it was, it was really on, on fragile ground because every single thing that went wrong and you know what, you know, for a female, especially whether it's hormonal or yeah. any kind of stresses that tips the balance of your blood sugars quite, <coughs> excuse me, quite easily. But she really took it in my view as it was something in her diet that was, she did right or wrong. And chastised herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because it it is kind of it was an all or nothing. Like from one day <laughs> eating normal, as one would say, to you know being completely like almost raw food vegan, yeah. <laughs> vegan dieting. It was a it was a big flip in in one day. So and the harder that and the more she you know but and sometimes if you're just getting sick and your blood sugars are thrown for a week. Yeah. It, she would take it really critically, like, I've done something wrong and I, I have to punish myself. I need to run extra and chin-ups or grill. Like, she really, that she didn't take the balance of it. She just, it was very rigid when she started off. And, and you know, I can see now that she's on the other end of that. She's much more balanced. But in that initial stage, yeah, it was, it was diet rigid, exercise rigid. Punish herself if it didn't go right. Okay. So that brings up, and I hadn't really thought about it this way. And again, it could be the Capricorn in me, or it could be the diabetes background, but you know, in high school and some of those years, I would work out three times a day and it was vanity too. I wanted to be thin and you know, all the things that the girls want to be at that age. But I really feel like it was diabetes related at the end of the day. So so that's, yeah. And we were definitely warned about that. And there's 
a little bit of research about it, um, but using like exercise as a form of blood sugar control. Yeah. Because it does. Exercise and diet has a huge impact on blood sugar, but it really shouldn't be used at, like as that control mechanism. Like what I had done, which was not recommend, you know, if I tested high, I would go out for a run and I'd come back and it would be a little bit more normal. So then I would, you know, do like some push-ups or like something like that and and really use that just as a form of blood sugar control, which, which isn't good because then like exercise is an important part of your life and and health. And you don't want to associate that with the negative feelings that come along with high blood sugar either. So it's kind of a, like a fine, uh, yeah, line to walk on. And, and I mean, we, we've all done it where you test a little bit high and you, okay, this is a good time to go for a walk or you just had Thanksgiving dinner and okay, you know, like you want to come for a walk with me, like, you know, that kind of thing. So it's definitely a fine line, but I was using it as like, okay, I tested high, drop everything go for a run and, and that wasn't healthy and go hard. And here's one thing that I'd never heard of until tell we were faced with it. delayed low is a real thing. <laughs> you mm-hmm. really, so, so it has that counter effect at some point and you don't know really when it's going to happen. So that's why, you know, they always said, you know, she should be using it as a long term yeah. broad thing, not as a, as a, as a short term cure to or answer to blood sugars because then she'd have a delayed low in the night and then mm-hmm. she'd retreat and, what a yo-yo. So, so in the beginning, absolutely. It was very rigid. Um, I, I admired and still do her ability to stick. I can't believe it, how she can stick with things. Um, but the control was, it was all or nothing. And, and I used to say, you know, it was, I used to say, it's like every number. And this is one of the things that we really had to work on with her, with cinnamon, because her happiness was hinged on the number of the blood sugar reading. Yeah. How am I feeling today? Let me shake up that magic ball. (laughs) It depends on what my blood sugar says. So I'd see that if she had a a number that wasn't in range, it automatically, oh, and then cinnamon was, you know, very sensitive to those um, readings. And and she became a a little bit afraid for a while of, of testing. Yeah, she did. Like, and when I switched to the Libra, it was a little bit of a good change for her. But yeah, she didn't like the testing kit after a while just because I would test and I would test. And she's so, so sensitive that like, of course, I wouldn't test and, you know, bad dog kind of thing. She had nothing to do with it. But she was so sensitive that that little adjustment in my mood she could pick up on and started to associate the tester with, with yeah. negative feelings. Yeah. And, and so... Yeah, I learned that she was incredibly sensitive and that I really had to to balance that. And and nor should my I mean, you know, you don't feel great when you're high or low or things like that, but it it was very dictative of of how I felt and how I reacted to other people. And she didn't want to alert her if her blood sugar was high. And so she sort of she went through a little bit of a period where being she was not she was more emotional support than physical support and I think it's because she got a bit scared because it was all or nothing yeah. she actually went back um the the people the organization we worked with dog guides were so good and they understood the problems and they they took her back to Ontario for some retraining just to get that fresh perspective and was an, it with great results she we, everybody needed a reset <laughs> so yeah. 
Yeah. What? Okay. So Xander, what, cause everybody has their own goal for blood sugars. Um, what do you feel you're best at around? Definitely the lower numbers. So I know it's different than your scale, but between that four and eight range, I'd feel good at five or six. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, uh, my goal is one eleven. That's very hard to admit. <laughs> it but yeah and I know and especially you know like Zandra was so controlled and she was so rigid you expect my blood sugars to be like perfect all the time and and they definitely weren't like I can't remember a time when they were perfect nor does any diabetic I think because yeah because yeah there, there's so many things that come into play whether that's like hormones or stress or anything like that so well even you said the delayed low I I mean I've had this for a really long time and it wasn't until this year and moving to San Antonio and I was working out a lot more and I was doing a lot of things in the pool and mm-hmm. I just kept, it, there was like one week and every morning at 3am, my blood sugar would just bottom. I could just, and it was like, and my Dexcom would go off and it woke me up and I, but I was like, I can't figure this out. And I remember talking to a certified diabetes educator friend who also has type one. And I was like, listen, I'm just going to run some stuff by you. I don't know what's going on. And I feel crazy. And he was like, Amber, when you work out, it can stay in your system. Mm-hmm. And I don't, he, he worded it correctly. I'm totally dumbing it down, but I wasn't even thinking about the fact that me working out in the pool the day before would have an effect. So anywho, the reason I bring that up is like some days you get it. Some days you don't. I mean, <laughs> that's that moving target that I, <laughs> I, I thought I, I thought this was all good. And you know, it's just, I thought it was a formula, like for <laughs> life. Like, oh, you're a diabetic. Here's your, it's like a, it's like a body mass index. Here's the yeah. chart. This is what you need and away you go. And wow, we're, we're, was I ever wrong? Well, and I think it's one of those things, and I've said this to you, Janet, I'm sure, but um, the parent's perspective versus what's actually going on and um, what level of education you get, obviously you really dove into this, but you know, I have parents thank me all the time for talking about real life diabetes because I mean, I've talked in front of a JDRF group. I think my blood sugar was 372. I had insulin on board, no food. And it was because my stress level was so high. Yeah. And the trip was a nightmare. And I just remember being so pissed as I woke up, walked up on stage as the keynote speaker to say, you know, my blood sugar is ridiculous right now. And tell you, you know, whatever. So the factors. So, um, you know, and I, I appreciate that, that you do have that real discussion because honestly, I couldn't find... Um, as wonderful as we have some of the resources that we had, there wasn't this, you know, 10 years ago, there, there wasn't this. And um, whether we would have been open to it or not, I, I can't say I would like to think so, but um, just finding that, you know, what you and I had spoken, but that when you see somebody over 40, you're like, tell me, <laughs> this is great. I just want to hold on to you in the hope that, <laughs> that you can live and yeah. go forward because it's, it's not, not re- always, you know, it's the daily grind. It truly daily is. Grind. Well, and okay, Xander, you're a word on the street. You'll be 21 in January. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> a new chapter of life and uh, exciting adulthood. Yay. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's the thing. That's different for us. It's yeah. 21 for you guys, but it's 18 here. Oh. I, I've already been. <laughs> she's an adult. Yeah, <laughs> adult and stuff are already. So in BC, where she lives, um, it was 19. It's 19, and in Alberta, it's eight. It's 18 years old. So, so she kind of she got to break out into that at 18. <laughs> yeah, you you grow up fast here in in the north. <laughs> 
you're playing hockey, you're drinking beer, you, you know, you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta stay warm, you see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. well, if, you, if you don't want to talk about it, no worries, but I know a lot of parents worry about alcohol and their children and things like that. Well, for right. all parents, I mean, let's not, diabetes or not, is a concern. Have you found something that you feel comfortable drinking that doesn't make your blood sugar go bizarre? For sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked. And I, like, throughout, you know, especially the 16, 17, 18 years and going along with that whole notion of just being, like, super controlling, super strict yeah. regimen, I had no room for alcohol. I had no room for wasting time <laughs> with hanging out at bars. I was, like, very... Or money. She was frugal. Yeah. <laughs> school workout and very like particular so I, I was a bit of an anomaly in that sense where I didn't like have that same like experience with friends and stuff like that but mm -hmm. now letting go of a bit of that like really strict regimen and and having some drinks and things like that I did experience so beer is like liquid bread yes. <laughs> so, yeah so um yeah, that, that one, you definitely have to do your insulin and you have to wait, depending on the insulin, if you're on like a, a rapid acting insulin, yeah. you want to wait your 15 minutes. If you're on just a um, rapid or yeah, just a fast acting insulin, you want to wait half an hour and make yeah. sure that it's going to spike when you consume that drink. Um, but if you're having things like hard liquor, that kind of thing, like a shot of something, definitely pair it with some food because that'll yeah. uh, plummet your blood sugar. And so the perfect drink that I found is, is wine. <laughs> Cause yeah, it has, I'm a yeah, wild like, person. like 12, 12 grams of carbs sometimes, well, at least for the one that I drink per glass and that offsets the, the alcohol effect and yeah. it's pretty perfect. So I think finding that and if you are going to have coolers and beer and, and stuff like that, just making sure that you do that insulin beforehand or else you'll be high yeah. and drunk and it'll just be a, a horrible day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's one of my memories was, um, was and, and I get this now um, with the boyfriend that I had in high school, his mom used to just, and I, I really didn't even know, but she'd, can you please watch because a low looks like you're drunk and, and we just have to be sure. And she, and I, I remember her with almost like a pleading look and right. I didn't understand it. I'm like, chill. <laughs> it's like, what have you, it's all good. Yeah. And now I've got the one with the pleading, like, can everybody just watch? For this? <laughs> yeah. And it was funny when she first, I mean, out of the mouths of babies because she was 11 and when we went to the stallery and the nurses were all introducing and, you know, we're, we, they're very supportive. And, and um, do you have any questions? They asked her first off and here she was. I never even thought of it. She said, am I going to be able to drink alcohol? And we went, what? <laughs> and I thought like, we're not, I don't know. Is that a reflection of the parenting? Yeah. I like wine too. <laughs> like, do you want to be like mom or I didn't know where that came from, but it, they said, no, it's actually one of the most common questions. Am I going to be like my friends? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll never forget. This is in high school. I, I'm going to say 10th grade, ninth grade. And wine coolers had just come out and I probably shouldn't share. I don't know if I should share this. But we would get, they were, came in four packs and I would drink two. And my other, my friend drank two. And I'll never forget. I had to go to the endocrinologist like the next week. And I just knew they were going to know I'd had two wine coolers. I'm like, well, I like they're going to be testing for my alcohol content from, you know, the weekend before, but I was more fearful of, my endocrinologist than I was like my parents finding out. 
And that says a lot, I guess, that it was totally ridiculous. But And as an adult, I will say, Xandra, and I don't know if you have close friends like this, but I had a girls weekend this time last year. And I was like, listen, ladies, I've got my Dexcom on my arm. Here's my cell phone code. If you need, if anything were to happen to me, you could see my blood sugar. And I want to just drink the champagne. I want to have a good time all weekend. And it was great because they got to see what I would have to go through. And I wasn't being shy about, all right, I got to eat. Or does anybody else want a snack? Let me give food for everybody. So I think there are times it's nice to be able to share kind of what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So one, one interesting thing. So you said fear of your endocrinologist. So we had, you know, a doctor going through the stallery, but then there was this kind of transition nurse practitioner, Karen mm-hmm. is my name, and you mentioned her in the book, but she was the first person who ever really laid it out to me. And it was on a piece of paper and she like wrote all the side effects. Like if your blood sugar is at this level for this amount of time, you're going to have like retinopathy, yeah. neuropathy, uh, like heart disease and just kidney failure and all of these complications. And that was a real moment where it, it, it's also set in like all the long-term complications. And that's a huge fear of diabetics. And that's been, I think my biggest fear throughout. Um, yeah. And that's where I like, even I listened to one of your podcasts about the diabulimia and I'm like, Oh, I could yeah. never like, as much as I, you know, want to have a, everybody wants that easy route to, Staying slim, I'm like, I could, I, I don't know if I could do that just because of fear of those long-term complications and having that kind of instilled in me, which is, is, is a positive thing. So it sounds like when you, when you said fear of your endocrinologist, I was just wondering if you had that same kind of fear of long-term complications as well. You know, that's a great question. And I will say that when I was diagnosed so long ago, it was a death sentence. I mean, there were, it, we didn't even discuss from what I recall complications. Um, if I lived 20 years with diabetes then, and I had my eyesight and my toes, it was going to be a blessing. And so I'll never forget when I made it to that 20 year mark. I don't know if it was consciously, I was like, okay, what's next? I'm here. I've got, I don't have any problems. You know, so I, that's one of the messages that I really try to push is that I think we do need to be educated in the possibilities of X, Y, and Z. But I think the fear factor is it's it can really damage your soul long term. I don't know how to word that. I think when you're living in fear and this and and this is what I've really you know that's really subtle as a message for me with Alexandra is when you're living in fear all the time, whether you're the one with that illness with diabetes or the parent of fearing all the time, you leave no room for the option that you could have a wonderfully healthy, happy life. Nobody's free and clear from problems. But when you're living in fear, you don't leave room for that love and hope and acceptance and, and gifts that come from these tough times. So, so I really found them. And when, when Zandra was going through additional illnesses, like in that first year of university, she, um, she was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. um, And, and then with this, Okay, you can pronounce this like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a really like rare thing. So it started out they look like bruises on on my shins and they they can appear on any like bony surface kind of and, and it's associated with diabetes, but people without diabetes can get it as well. But it's called necrobiosis lapoidica. And I know <laughs> there's diabetic cordon, but I was just gonna say at the beginning. <laughs> but um, yes. Yeah, so 
So it looked like bruises and they would go away. And I'm like, okay, I play soccer and these bruises are on my shins. Like that makes sense. And they just kept getting like worse and worse and worse till they looked like wounds kind of. And then I was like, I have to figure this out. And I asked my diabetes endocrinologist and they had, and they, I was like, can you please like, look at this? Like, what is this? And she's like, okay, I'll take a picture of it. And, and we'll like do a little bit of looking, never heard back from it. Went in the next time, like, do you have any idea? And they're like, oh no, it's not diabetes related. Like hmm. maybe it's like bone fractures. So they sent me to this bone specialist and I got like the radiation scans and everything. There was nothing wrong with my bone structure or anything. Um, but the, the doctor said it was, yeah, the necrobiosis lipoidica and it was something to do with uh, hmm. diabetes and just like nerve damage, that kind of thing. And so it was one of those situations where it's that, that rare, rare thing, but another thing connected to diabetes. And so that on top of the thyroid, and then I got um, the skin condition vitiligo, I think mm. is how you pronounce it, but it's, it's where you're off. that pesky autoimmune system attacks <laughs> the melanocytes, which cause the pigmentation in your skin. Yeah. Uh, those last like two years and I get really tan in the summertime so I was having like speckle, like white spots on my like chest and neck. And I'm like, what is this? And yeah, I f- found out about that as well. And it just sometimes seems like one thing piled on top of another, on top of another. And, and her leg, uh, with her legs, we won't make her flip her leg up. <laughs> but it's something that people are like, if you're wearing um, capris or shorts or skirt, it's like every time somebody asks you what happened, because it, yeah. looks, it looks like wound-like, but you know, it, it's a, it looks like a wound that's just never healed in probably seven years since you've had it, right? So mm-hmm. it just, and, it, and it's now starting on your next leg. So yeah, it's just one of those things. And so, and again, that's where I really realized, you know, you're, she's going through all these things as, as a young adult. Yeah. But again, if we're fearing the next thing, because that's kind of that, oh, great. Well, what next? I'm going to go to the eye doctor. How's that going to go? That you're not leaving room for that there can be a lot of hope. And there's a reason it's hard to imagine. There's a reason why everybody goes through what they do. There's a reason why I'm a mom of a type one. Yeah. Um, if I look deeper, I think our lives have been so enriched by some of the experiences that we've had. You know, we went to Iceland for that run. We, we've done so many amazing things and we've found hope in some of the most bleak situations that we never would have discovered in ourselves had we not have dealt with this so well and uh, you know Janet as we talked about it last week is it a blessing or a curse I've never seen it really as I was angry and I didn't know it so I accept that part of it but now I really see it as a blessing because like you said I have had so many experiences and I am a part of a women's support group that these women are soulmates and they live in other countries and you know I get the opportunity to connect with so many people and have conversations with Xandra and know that I'm here for someone like her anytime if she has that rough road or needs um, advice that you should never take. (laughs) Um, But it's one of those things and I'm, I don't know the words proud of you, but you've got a lot of stuff going on internally with your body turning against you and that can suck. That's another thing I wanted to like really bring up in, in this podcast is for the longest time as every diabetic is, has it laid out to them at the beginning, like, you know, your autoimmune system is attacking your islet cells yeah. and ruining them. And it's just like, wow, like, what am I doing to myself? And it's just this huge, like, body hate, not in the typical body hate of, like, 
figure, but body hate isn't like, I hate my body. It's stupid. It's attacking itself. And right. And, and me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so one of, one of the biggest, like, and it's still hard for me to wrap my head around, but it's getting around that, like hating my body and that I can't do anything right. Because in the four years of, of human science and anatomy and physiology classes that I've taken and learning how complex the body systems mm. actually are and realizing that, you know, even me being able to breathe and all the functions that go into my lungs and, and that yeah. kind of digestion, it's like, wow, I have a lot of things that my body is still doing right. And yeah. <laughs> like way, way more things than I ever would have thought, like how my hair grows, how yeah. like, scent works, all those little things. It's like, okay, this one little eyelet cell, or this group of eyelet cells is getting attacked. And now the skin pigment cells, but whatever, <laughs> it is only a very small portion of what your body's doing. So it's, I think it's a huge message to not, you know, hate your body for not doing this one thing, right? Because who knows? I mean, we don't know what causes diabetes, whether that's like epidemiology and environmental factors, a little bit to do with genetics, a little dash of, you know, pollution or diet or whatever have you. Like, you know, it's really something to wrap your head around. Like it's, it's not my body's fault. It tries to do everything it can to keep me alive. And it does do so many things to keep me alive. And yeah, so it's a really important message for me and I think for other people as well to get over that, you know, what's wrong with me and, and stupid body, stupid immune system, that kind yeah. of process. In this time of, of Sandra having diabetes, I, I became a certified hypnotherapist yeah. on the side. And the and re- reason why I thought I would, would um, do that is partially for this because when you see your child hating, because that's the, oh, your body's just attacking itself. What an unloving thought that was. And, and it was helpful for me to just kind of have an understanding or level or something I could do. So some of the things that we used to, to work on that's not necessarily hypnotherapy, although we used to do that as well, but um, was just when you do a correction dose, instead of, you know, how many times does a person with diabetes do a correction dose and say, you better darn, you better darn well work, get this down into regular levels. Instead, you know, we used to say like, okay, settle, take this correction dose and, and just give that gratitude. Thank you, body, that you know what to do when you get yeah. this dose and, and, you know, I'm going to be fine. And we found astonishing um, differences um, when those doses or when that juice box in a low, how the body responded when you gave it that support, yeah. emotional support. So it was really pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. From a bit of a like physiological, physi- oh, can't, can't speak today, but <laughs> logical, yeah, yeah, of that background, a lot of it probably has to do with the stress levels. Because as you mentioned with that keynote speaking event, stress has a lot to do with it. So when I tested and I saw that my blood sugar is high, instant stress you do a correction dose the stress and the cortisol and everything yeah. like that will cause actually a lot of resistance to that correction dose oh, yeah. thing and so it's just like you know a cycle and then it'll start working and you'll plummet into a low so it's another important message for diabetics out there that you know getting yourself stressed and worked up about whatever blood sugar that be high or low or or whatever is is really counterintuitive to what you want to happen and and it's a, it's a big learning process to not see that number and and have a lot of negative emotions about it because it sucks. And I think a lot of it stems into that fear of long-term complication. But 
it's really important for your immediate and long-term health, I think, to really keep that stress level down and yeah. not let that number be dictated of how you feel. One of the things that I learned later in life, and I'm glad that you already have the mindset, is you know I do meditation, I do daily affirmations, and to the point of I kind of feel ridiculous that I will pull out my syringe and I'll be like, thank you, syringe, for allowing me to draw this insulin and put it into my body. Thank you, arm, for allowing me to put this needle in you to give me what I need. So thanking my body, even though it doesn't work great all the time, (laughs) um, like you were saying, there's a lot of great things that my body is doing for me right now. And if we can just focus some of that energy on that, I think it's, it's great. And I had the pleasure, and I think about this often in my head when I get in a pissy mood or whatever especially with diabetes. Rev Run, I interviewed him ages ago, Rev Run of Run DMC. um, And he would say, do your best and forget the rest. And that's such a simple thing, right? But so don't beat yourself up for when that blood sugar gets high because you messed up the carb count. I mean, it's just, we don't judge yourself on a number. Because if you do, you're just going to be killing yourself inside by stress. I wish I had heard that, like, three years ago and I, I probably do hear it right like some of these things you know somebody told you about it but it's only you know comes into your life when you kind of accept yes it. and when you can hear it. experience yeah is it is resulting in that um, acceptance of what you said what you said but yeah that that's really great because as us diabetics and all the other diabetics out there there are so many things that can just upset your blood sugar stress yeah. is just one of the thousands doing doing your best like if if you you know wake up and you have a high blood sugar and you do your correction dose and then you still wake up sometimes even higher that's what happened last night at least for me I I woke up and I tested 17 which is really oddly high Mm. and I corrected and then I woke up 18 I'm like great that's that's nice but um (laughs) but you just kind of have to let it go and, and know that you know what I you know, got up, I tested, I corrected, I did everything that I was supposed to do. And so at that point, it's just out of your control. Yeah. Some days it is out of your control, uh, which makes it a virtual, you know, daily challenge, I guess. Like I'll do a video game daily challenge or like a puzzle or something. And by God, I'm never going to miss it. If I could think of my diabetes as a daily challenge, I was like, you know what? Some days that puzzle was not as fun as it was yesterday, you know? So have a positive attitude. And I want to end too, Janet, you just launched a book really this week, right? And so we'll have all the information in the show notes, but could you do a, just a two sentence shout out as to what people can expect when they check it out? Absolutely. It's called Zandra, my daughter, diabetes and lessons in love. And the book is just from my perspective, from a mom's perspective. And, and, and it does, you know, it chronicles kind of the situation of diabetes, but it kind of goes back a little further because we all bring to our present situation all of our past baggage. So it kind of, kind of goes, goes a bit into that. But it's just how, you know, I maneuvered um, situations where, you know, Xandra wasn't a child who, who took on diabetes as a open and, and, and exciting challenge at all. And she, it was really hard to parent often yeah. somebody who just didn't want to acknowledge what was going on. There's a lot of fear because, you know, you take on as a parent what your child is doing and there wasn't, uh, she really resisted the, the team aspect. It was a her because I wasn't poking myself or giving injections. Right. So um, it was kind of how I was able to work through that and, and, and understand that in that, that there wasn't really a place 
for me in the beginning, but I really had to claim one and, and it was the support. And, you know, for any person, you know, if it's, we're here for a good time, not a long time, then that's what it is. I'm going to be the best support for that person that I brought into the world that I could be and take on everything. Like I have big shoulders. I can hold it right best as I can with some support, but um, how can I keep, offering that love and hope when somebody's feeling so defeated by by something so it's just really uh takes me it takes my story and and walks us walks through those challenges of other additional um, diagnoses losing a friend going to university those kinds of fears and and i hope offers a lot of hope and understanding from a parent's perspective oh go ahead Sandra. Well, I knew you couldn't keep it to two sentences, but I was a little longer. And so just from uh, a bit of my perspective, I know we're running a bit short on time, but um, <laughs> you said like you're writing a book and I was like, oh no. And then once I really started to think about it, I know there's a little bit for, for diabetes supporters, but a lot of it is like for the diabetic and, hmm. and diabetes podcasts and, and diabetes yeah. knowledge and things like that. And I think, yeah, there really needs to be a spot for the people supporting the people with mm-hmm. diabetes that's a huge role as well. And I know I didn't make it easy on her at all, especially when we go into appointments and she'd say, here's our blood sugar records. And we tested this at lunch and we did our needle. And I'm like, there's no we in this. It was like, it was like doing a group project and I did all the work, but somebody else is claiming it. And it was just horrible and I hated it. But, and I can only imagine from a parent or supporter perspective, you you do feel like it's we and you do internalize a lot of those issues and stuff as well. So yeah, yeah. I look forward to reading the book. It should come in any day and I'm passing. I'm hoping they're not guaranteeing <laughs> anything with, with our situation. So. No, seriously. And I'm going to pass it along to my mom and I'll, I'll, I'll gladly report back as to what she thinks about it. Because thank you. Yes, thank you, thank so you for much. doing what you do. That's, oh, thank yeah. you. Ladies have a great week. You too. <laughs> See you later. Right, bye. Bye. It's always nice to connect with people who are as passionate as I am and willing to share their unedited story. I've learned so much from Janet's book, Zandra, My Daughter, Diabetes, and Lessons in Love, and hope you'll take a moment to check it out. The show notes have everything you need to get your hands on a copy. Before I wrap up, I have a few quick reminders. Number one, this episode was brought to you by Outer Isle Gourmet Foods. I've thoroughly enjoyed sampling their goodies and don't feel guilty or loaded up on carbs after scarfing down a delicious meal. Thank you. (laughs) Be sure to check out the show notes for the killer discount they're offering my listeners. Number two, the Real Life Diabetes Virtual Happy Hour takes place every Thursday, and that includes the holidays from 5 to 6.15 p.m. Central Standard Time. But be sure to register via the private Facebook group or by clicking the Happy Hour logo in the show notes. You got to sign up to participate. Number three, you want to participate in the 100th Unicorn episode, and I want to highlight how your business is making my life with diabetes a more pleasant one. Don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. And number four, we're always looking for partners, sponsors, etc., who share my mission to provide support and resources for all people living with diabetes and their loved ones. Penelope would love to chat, so hit her up at Penelope at DiabetesDailyGrind.com. And finally, As we roll into the 2020 holiday season, please remember, you are not alone. 
If you want to contact me directly, I can be reached at amber at diabetesdailygrind.com. I love getting messages from you. There are so many Facebook platforms right now and, and just groups. I just, if you're ever having a moment to where you feel alone, please just connect. I am always here for you. Okay. That's enough. Okay. Enough rambling. You got your diet peeps. They've got your back. <laughs> All right. That's a wrap, everyone. Cheers to the highs and lows. Diabetes is a daily grind. It's a daily grind.